1: It was really interesting because of the genre and because of the time period and because of what's expected to her. She's very stoic, but she's just got that underlying cheekiness that I think is is kind of what she uses to get what she wants, but also gets used against her. Probably my favorite person to play because I just got to transform completely. Like I would take off the wig and get home and be like, oh, damn.
2: Welcome, all you lords and ladies from across the Seven Kingdoms to the premiere of West of Westeros, Entertainment Weekly's Game of Thrones podcast. I'm Nick Romano, a senior writer here at EW, and I'm joined by some pretty fantastic people, if I, if I do say so myself. The first is Lauren Morgan, EW podcaster and senior photo editor. I like to think of her as our resident maester since she knows so much about the world George R.R. R. R. Martin has created. Lauren, are you <laughs> as excited for the return of Game of Thrones as I am?
3: I I am. I am. I, you know, I, I know some people felt burned by the end of Game of Thrones. And I have to admit, there was some stuff I was not happy about. But I love the Targaryens. I read Fire and Blood. I've read, I've read every possible thing that George R. Martin has written about this world. So I am all in for the House of the Dragon. So very excited to join you on this podcasting adventure.
2: For anyone listening in, Lauren and I will be hosting West of Westeros all season long to unpack each episode of House of the Dragon, the prequel series to Game of Thrones that dropped tonight on HBO and HBO Max. I assume if you're listening in, you've already seen it. If not, get out of here and go watch the show. We'll also be joined by a rotating roster of guest hosts this week we have someone friends of ew may recognize back when this podcast was titled game of thrones weekly it was hosted by two gents james hibbard and darren franich and we have darren here today one of ew's chief tv critics Darren, thank you so much.
0: It's an honor to be here. Very excited for this journey you guys are setting out on. Now, are you guys committed to doing this podcast for all 120 Game of Thrones spinoffs that are coming <laughs> up in the near future? Is this is this I think, is this going I to that is this plan. going to be yeah. <laughs> a a thrice weekly event once HBO and whatever HBO Max becomes fully embraces the wealth of westeros based content that's coming our
2: way (laughs) well darren you know we're not just talking about westeros we're going west of westeros (laughs) so yes (laughs) so guys game of thrones is back officially how are we all feeling? As our minds back in sort of the day-to-day of being in Westeros, in this fantasy world, are, do we still have lingering kind of animosity towards the Game of Thrones season finale? Lauren, you already talked about your feelings a little bit. Darren, I'll start with you.
0: I mean, I have no animosity. I am always and probably always will be fundamentally a lover of the books. George R. R. Martin's original kind of mainline series, starting with the Game of Thrones, going up through A Dance with Dragons, and Winds of Winter, at some point, that for me is like the grand spectacle, absolute reason to love this world. And I love Fire and Blood, the book which is kind of providing the basis for this show. Fire and Blood, which in book form is way different from the other books. It's much more of a kind of deep, remote history of the Targaryen dynasty. I just gobbled that book up and I still just sometimes crack it open (laughs) and read a few pages. And it's so different from Martin's other writing. So I guess what interests me about this new show is that in a strange way, there's maybe more opportunity for these TV creators to put more of their own mark just in terms of being able to actually bring you closer to the characters than the book does. Because the book, which again, I love, is written from kind of a historical remove. So in that sense, I'm I'm always game for the shows, even though I think I fundamentally do view them through the prism of uh, of the books, which I which I generally adore.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so before we kind of dive deep into this first episode of House of the Dragon, let's set some ground rules for everyone listening. We want to be respectful of book spoilers. So for this first portion of the pod, we're just going to be talking about House of the Dragon from a show perspective, meaning anything that has already aired so far anything that has been reported in the press, all of that is fair game. Then we're going to pivot a bit later to a more spoilery discussion and talking about the show in relation to Martin's books, how both the show and the book may or may not complement each other, that kind of thing. And then the final portion will be dedicated to an interview with a member of the cast and crew. This week, we will be sharing my interview with Millie Alcock, who plays young Rhaenyra Targaryen, which was conducted during my reporting for EW's House of the Dragon set visit and cover story. So to kick things off, what are our general impressions of this premiere episode lauren i'll start with you
3: well it is obvious that hbo spent a lot of money on it (laughs) it looks very very expensive that was like as soon as it opened up i was like there's like a a attorney in here and i remember i don't know if people remember the first season of game of thrones the attorneys looked kind of janky compared to the later seasons like a battle would a battle is about to happen and then they would cut to the aftermath of it This, they are fully invested in here. They have got the money. Some of these scenes made me very nervous from a COVID perspective because there (laughs) were a lot of people in those stands. And I was just like, oh boy, I hope everybody's been tested because this is making me very nervous. But yeah, it's like definitely they the HBO put their full like, you know, they did not cheap out on this and at at all. So that was it. I thought also just like the casting when they announced the casting for most of these people, like I didn't know Millie Alcock or Emily Carey, who play the younger Alicent, and Rhaenyra, But, you know, obviously, this is like, you know, you've got Matt Smith. I'm a big Doctor Who fan. Patty Considine, all of these other actors. I thought that was like really, really well cast. It is obvious that HBO is planning for this to be their big next blockbuster show. So we'll see if the fans respond to that.
0: Lauren, do you think Matt Smith in doing this show was just like, I really need people to stop thinking of me as the doctor? Like, even (laughs) even after everything else I've done since then, I need to go really the opposite direction. Direction with this and just <laughs> yeah. play someone who is violent and malicious and has a lot of other things going on.
3: <laughs> you know, I know there was a little bit of controversy when he was cast, but when I and I you know, I watched all of his seasons on Doctor Who, I watched him in the crown and everything. Matt Smith, he can be very goofy and jokey and stuff, but he can access like that cold imperiousness that is really key to like Damon Targaryen. And so I thought he was actually worked really well here. Like he is a really very good actor, despite the fact that I think he's Sort of underrated as an actor so for me it was when he his casting got announced i was like oh i can see that <laughs> i don't know about his his wig the most time for some of these actors i'm not sure the white wig is complementing their complexion in the best way but alas you know what can you do with that but you know in terms of the in terms of the actual character i was like oh that that's a good damon
0: yeah i'm i'm kind of with lauren this first episode i had some struggles with in general i think especially the first 10 15 minutes or so but right away i do feel like there's a few actors who are just kind of capturing at least what I think is interesting about the Targaryens, you know, between Matt Smith and uh, Patty Considine, uh, I think is how it's pronounced, um, uh, who are both good in their own way as very different, you know, kind of Targaryen, major, huge people. Um, And uh, yeah, Millie Alcock, who I think is definitely one of the show's discoveries. Because the Targaryens are supposed to be... I, simultaneously even more fantastical than the other fantasy characters in this universe, mm-hmm. but also kind of weird and sort of driven by these mad ambitions that come from their ancestry. And uh, to me, those three each in their own way are kind of capturing something really interesting with with their characters. So I, I kind of felt like with this first episode, whenever it was focusing in on them, I definitely was very intrigued and very invested. And then there was a lot of stuff about shipping lanes, which <laughs> yeah. I was initially less invested in whenever i hear that i also hear trade routes around naboo i was
3: just gonna say that like the taxes like the, you know when you saw the taxes in the phantom menace Qual, and you're like what you know it's like when you get into shipping lane this is a little bit more in the governmental nitty-gritty than i really want in my <laughs> fantasy shows so
2: so we are 200 years before the events of hbo's game of thrones house of the dragon also stipulates that specifically 172 years before the birth of daenerys targaryen amelia clark's character and nine years into the reign of king viserys the targaryen at the height of house targaryen's power in westeros and you know to your point darren considine considine the game of Threat, the featurettes for this was considine the actual like other celebrity interviews talk show appearances say considine so i feel like both could be right i don't know that this is one of the things that this is going to be a work in progress as this pod goes on I told Lauren this story already, but when I was interviewing Eve Best about her character, I, I told her, I was just like, oh, uh, so I'm so glad I got to hear you pronounce Rhaenys' name, because I've been calling her Rhaenys. And this woman laughed for a straight 30 <laughs> seconds, could not stop, was just bawling over, and I'm like, it wasn't even that funny, but okay, I can- <laughs>
3: I remember when Game of Thrones debuted and I had read, I was like, I was reading the books right before it debuted. And when it debuted, I was like, Oh, that's how you say Arya. I had completely different, like Tyrion. Like I had so many different pronunciations in my head and I was like, Oh, that's how you say it.
0: I had a half a decade, Lauren, of in my head never saying it out loud, <laughs> pronouncing his name like tire iron, basically. <laughs> like that—that's that, where I was coming from. And yeah, like I would just say "R.I.P." in my head to Princess Rainra. <laughs> Apparently, it's Renaria, which is a much, uh, definitely a better name. And then I think can we get a colloquium here. So is it Corlys Valerian and not Corliss Valerian? I think it's Corliss, unless I like completely missed something. Okay. I
3: thought it was Corliss. Sometimes
0: it's English accents. I, 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 I can't quite tell.
3: There's always sometimes when people say things and they're just like, hold on, did they say that <laughs> differently than, you know, another actor just said it?
2: Time for a rewatch already. (laughs) Yes. yes. So you guys have kind of mentioned certain details about the specific time of Westeros that we're currently in. Do you guys have any favorite details? I mean, for me personally, I really enjoyed watching the small council, how it operates, where they have these little spheres and they put it down and these little sockets and like Mm -hmm. that's what kind of starts each meeting. That already, I was just like, wow, like I don't know why I gravitated to that detail specifically. Lauren, what about you?
3: I just like kind of seeing the realm at the height of the Targaryen power when you go through King's Landing and you're seeing dragons all over the place and like you're seeing like this is a well-established dynasty especially considering this just came after like 60 years of peace with Jaehaerys's reign so it's just sort of like kind of interesting to see them like and the dragon pit and there's people in the dragon pit taking care of the dragon pit and all of this kind of stuff and or even just like the thing that I really loved was uh, when Rhaenyra and uh Damon were talking to each other in Valerian. They just talked to each other like it's like we heard a little bit of Valerian in Game of Thrones, but this is like full conversations going back and forth in Valerian, and you're just like, oh, this is interesting that they that this is really like their mother tongue and they and they're you know, they're just speaking to each other like casually like this. So I thought that was I thought that was really interesting.
0: To your point, Lauren, I think what I liked about just the framing of this time in this first episode is I think it does kind of remind you right away, like, oh, Game of Thrones, that show was really set in, in, in some respects, even at the beginning, in the sort of somewhat more broken down version of the civilization and just after a lot of disarray mm-hmm. and, and decades of troubles. And yeah, I I do think that it, the Godswood is very lovely and King's Landing seems to have gotten, it seems much bigger and much glowier in this show than it did in the previous show. And I, I, I do think that mm-hmm. even, as you were saying, even just the time spent at the tourney really brings home the kind of we're at the height of Imperial Rome version of. King's Landing, and I, I think I. I definitely appreciated all that. There was a lot of small council stuff, which I think was interesting because we definitely <laughs> got that on the previous show. But here, maybe just because the government is sort of running itself more efficiently, that seems to be more, more a part of the day-to-day life in King's Landing.
3: <laughs> it seems like the King's actually paying attention in the king's council <laughs> and he's not like just Joffrey being a brat or Robert and his cups or something like that. It does seem like there's actually some leadership discussion going on in the
2: small council. <laughs> so let's talk about the timeline of this show. Uh, so to kind of recap the big points, House of the Dragon will be chronicling the events leading up to and during the Dance of the Dragons, which was the name the poets of Westeros gave to a bloody civil war over succession of the Iron Throne that brought down the once thriving Targaryen dynasty. Rhaenyra Targaryen is named sole heir to the Iron Throne, but later in life, her father conceives a son, Aegon II, and that's really what sends the Targaryens into a civil war. But really, it seems like these guys are starting in a very peaceful era. And watching how these seeds are kind of planted and sprouting to get us to that point. I personally was shocked to kind of see the show kick off with the Great Council of Harrenhal and sort of a preface. Mm -hmm. kind of format. How do we kind of feel already about this linear timeline and all of these time jumps that we're going to be getting? We already got one between the preface and where the show actually starts. Darren, what are your thoughts on this?
0: Well, the first five minutes is the worst five minutes. I really feel strongly that just to me felt very PowerPointy and it felt very like, let's orient you and let's kind of show you all this background stuff. But I do think the show is doing something interesting with the linear storytelling because all viewers kind of know, even if they've not read the book, that there is this large conflict looming in the distance. There always is on a Game of Thrones show and the distance to travel in terms of time, it's pretty bold. And I think this first episode, by kind of anchoring you around a couple specific things the tournament, the birth of someone who might be an heir, which turns into something much more tragic. It did kind of convince me like, okay, even though we're far away from what seems like the most dramatic part of this story, there are a lot of elements here that are being established that will in theory pay off by taking the linear approach. So I would say I was a little skeptical going in just because, you know, because of what needs to happen in the terms of potentially years past to get to the larger part of the story. But I I thought this first episode did a good job of at least making you care about where these characters are at this seemingly more peaceful time of, of their lives. But I mean, Lauren, what did you think about, yeah, like starting almost more so than Game of Thrones, starting at a slightly less seemingly ultra dramatic point of this story?
3: I didn't mind seeing the great council mostly. Cause I think it's like, it's important to understand our uh, Reynes's.
2: Rainess.
3: Rainice. Rainice. Okay. I think it's important to see how she was passed over. Cause this is really like the battle of first cousins. Cause like she's first cousin, to Viserys and she's technically older because she's the child of the original of Jaehaerys' oldest son and he's the child of his second son. Both were the Prince of Dragonstone both died because the Prince of Dragonstone is like the drummers in Spinal Tap it's a very dangerous position to have you don't always survive ha- being Prince of Dragonstone so I feel like it was kind of important to sort of set the stage in showing how the Targaryens had already passed over a queen who had a better claim to the throne so and it was kind of interesting because I think that was supposed to be the innards of Hall because I think that's where the Grand Council was. If, I, uh, if I'm recalling correctly. Aaron Hall, yes. Yeah, yeah. But I think it just kind of set the stage. It said, okay, this is the uh, original conflict. This is what's setting the stage. And like Emma Aaron was, she might've been pregnant with Rhaenyra. I don't know if it was one of the other kids that died. So I didn't sort of mind that tiny little start to the show. And then we kind of moved forward in history. And I know they had like a kind of a no flashback rule on Game of Thrones, which eventually they broke. But yeah, I think it is kind of good to see the context that these people are growing up with. Like, I feel like if you missed the prologue, then you kind of wouldn't have understood like I think to see these people, their faces, and since there are so many Agons and Amons and you know people with similar <laughs> names, it's probably good to just be like, "This is who we're talking about. This is Joe and these are his two grandkids, and he was deciding this." You know, I think it was. A, I, I didn't mind starting it in that kind of linear fashion because it's a complicated story to keep track of sometimes.
0: Lauren, you just kind of brought about something else that I think is interesting about starting where we start as much as like certainly Renaria is going to be in a lot of ways the center of the show going forward. Her mom I think makes such a major mark on this episode and it's going to be her really her one and only her one and only episode and she has a line about the number of pregnancies she has had I think she says it's like five in ten years or something like that and I think that as much as the show in some ways spends like it's almost like the only thing anyone talks about is succession on this show like they talk about mm-hmm. it more than they do on the show literally called succession <laughs> I think that her kind of talking about it in this really deeply personal and anguished way is like you know I'm, I'm the person who's been working on this more than anyone and this is what I've kind of gone through yeah
3: I've been trying.
0: This is what my body's gone through. This is what my my soul has gone through. And thinking of how she ends up essentially getting sacrificed more or less for the future, which then goes go, goes even worse. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff where I felt just on a personal level, I was feeling really attached to the show more so than with some of that kind of macro top-down storytelling choices in, 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 in this premiere.
3: I mean, I think especially when you look at, and we'll get into the book stuff later, so I'll just mention it quickly. Like Emma Aaron, they kind of zoomed through her plotline really quick. She was Viserys' wife and, and they kind of zoomed through it. But like here, this is where I think that it's great about the show is that they can take the time and be like, okay, who was this woman? How was she a part of this family of Rhaenyra? and Viserys and like how was the tragedy of her, like it's really like the tragedy of her death that kind of sets the stage to come. Cause if she had survived or her child survived, we wouldn't have gotten the dance with the dragons. I just thought that that was a really kind of neat way where they just took a liner or a paragraph from the the novel and just turned it into like something bigger and more elegant. I thought
0: Lauren, George R. R. Martin only has so many paragraphs that can become a TV show <laughs> yeah. okay? we need we need some of his sentences to last for six seasons at this point. yeah that's for the true, future that's of true. the larger Warner Brothers corporation. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's true. <laughs> so I want to get into Emma a little bit more. But first I, I wanted to point out a couple of things. One, I can confirm that she is pregnant with Rhaenyra in this Council of Hall scene. I also loved that it was narrated by Emma Darcy, who we're not going to actually meet as mm-hmm. adult Rhaenyra until much later in the season. Millie Alcock is going to be playing the role for, I think, like the first half. I think I'm allowed to say that. But what I found interesting about The Heron Hall scene, and this is a very minor book spoiler. But the show, I don't know, it felt more significant in the book than it did in the show, because this is really the event that not only ruled that, you know, the Iron Throne could not pass through to a woman, but neither could it pass through a woman to her male descendants if the yeah. you know question of succession came up. And that's something that the this preface didn't really touch upon, which I thought was interesting because this is really this specific detail is really the whole thing. That's why there are so many people who have problems with Rainier's claim to the throne later on, which I thought was just, you know, an interesting choice. But in terms of Ama, let's talk about this birthing scene. I think it was the scene that made me, I needed to shut my eyes, turn my face. This was, I think a lot of people, for better and worse, are going to have a lot to say about this scene. I'm curious what you guys think about it, how it was handled, the merits of it. Lauren, I'll start with you
3: as someone who has had a c-section I'm not quite sure I needed to see that in such detail that was slightly dramatic my own c-section was a little bit dramatic so you know I got about 45 minutes notice before the doctor was like sorry she's not coming out the other way so you're like so I was just like there were certain certain shots where I was like I did not need to see that so you know, uh, if you uh, if you have experienced a C-section, they probably might want to put a trigger warning on this one. But I thought though it was really well acted between Patty and I don't know the actress who plays Emma, but like I thought that like there was a certain point where I was like, well, you could cut this now, but I don't know how you guys felt about it.
0: I've been present at two births, mm-hmm. not doing even point zero one percent as much as uh, as as you were doing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, watching the episode with my wife, very similar just kind of
3: uh, reactions
0: <laughs> on, on 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 both fronts basically what i thought that was interesting was you know that this was definitely a moment of pure medical horror and i think you know once yeah. you realize what's happening as a viewer it's just very shocking even without even seeing all the stuff happening which is even more shocking i kind of appreciated how disturbing it was and what I thought was interesting was that with her dead and with her her child essentially dying after, after a few hours, where that scene leaves you, it's essentially almost a scene that, at the end of it, the only person left who you can kind of look to is the king. And what the show immediately does to him from a viewer perspective, yeah. where he makes that decision, makes a decision that, you know, I, I think is is wrong and impossible and goes horribly. On one hand, you're kind of like, well, you know, King, you have a lot more impossible decisions to make, and I'm not sure this is a good, this is a, this is a good preview of coming events. Yeah. But I, I, I am curious to know what viewers who are coming to this now think of him. Because at least in this first episode, as an introduction, that is certainly a moment of immediately casting him in a bad light, but then seeing what devastation, how it devastates him and what he kind of ultimately does with his succession plan. It creates kind of complexity there, which I appreciated, I guess, if, 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 if that makes any sense.
2: I think it could have been, you know, treated a little bit differently in the way that it was shot. I think, you know, Amos face alone, kind of said a lot of what we needed to get from that scene. At the same time, I the other part of me also appreciates the graphic nature of this, because, I mean, Ryan Condal and Miguel Sapochnik, the two showrunners of this series, they really emphasize that, you know, even though it's an ensemble cast, even though, you know, there are kind of clear standout leads for this first season. It's really about Two women, Alison Hightower, Rhaenyra Targaryen, and sort of the patriarchal system that is systematically pitting them against each other, turning them into sort of the darker shades of themselves. And... This really made clear right off the bat, throughout the whole thing, that this society does not care about women. They are just there to give birth to male heirs, and that is their lot in life. And it was gruesome to watch. I couldn't watch the whole thing. It was... but it made its point at the end of the day
3: well that's why I think she even said like earlier in the season and they've said it in Game of Thrones that their war is the child that's where they do battles in the child bed and I have to say it made me so glad for the the joys of modern medicine and anesthesia and at least even the little flag that they put in front of you before yes. they do such things to you I mean
0: listen even with all that there's still maternal mortality rates and this you know in, mm-hmm. in some in, in some seemingly civilized countries the, the, the focus on the baby versus the baby and the mother and stuff. So yeah, I I think what you're saying is fair, Nick, about do we need all that stuff versus just, yeah, the performance was great. That said, the show has to clearly establish like, hey, you're going to see stuff here you're not going to see on the Rings of Power, okay? Like this is like, this is is HBO.
3: (laughs) There was that little uh, rating of King's Landing where it was just like, there was a certain shot of something getting chopped off that I think is probably going to traumatize just as many men as the women got traumatized on that childbirth scene.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there was there was a lot of there was a lot of eunuchs on the previous show. Not so much <laughs> not so much eunuch making on the previous show. Yeah, that's true.
3: <laughs>
2: Before we get into some of the more spoilery book related conversations, let's talk about who are our favorite players in the Dance of the Dragons so far. We talked a lot about the Small Council. I think mine is Lord Corlys Velaryon, Steve Chisholm's character. I'm going to read a quote that Steve mm-hmm. gave me. Lord Corlys is the only guy in this world when we meet him on the small council who's actually been to battle and actually knows what it is to fight he doesn't really have time for these people because one of the main stories is there's an incursion in this particular area of westeros called the stepstones and he's like we have to shut this down now there's no negotiating with these people And he's continually frustrated, which I thought was really interesting, because when we talk about Ryan Condal and Miguel Sapochnik, their mission is to kind of show the seeds of war that are planted in a time of peace. I mean, this is a time of great peace. I think it's like 60 or 70 years when there hasn't been a major conflict. And I love that Lord Corliss is really the only person who's actually seen a decent war or battle in his entire life. And I loved him sitting next to Rhaenys at the tourney and just being rolling their eyes at all these pedestrians. (laughs) jousting and they're like oh they don't even know (laughs) lauren what's who is your favorite player so far
3: i have to say i really liked Renice. i i I liked corliss as well but like just the way that she would like be checking out her nails while all of these people were getting like you know like you know she was just so like you know i i just like i want to see more from her she was just immediately like because you know this woman like she was passed over for the Iron Throne she has complicated feelings but and I thought the two of them together I thought they had great chemistry and you can tell that that's like a real a real relationship between the two of them I mentioned Matt Smith before I thought Patty was doing a great job with Viserys because I think in the book he's just kind of like things are happening around him but I think Patty he really gives a really lived in performance. And you could, you know, you could kind of understand that the flaws of the man, but also like in some respects, the charm of the man, he is likable in some respects, but you can see where his weaknesses are. So I was really enjoying, those were the ones that kind of really popped for me at first.
0: Darren, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with Lauren again, for me, this first episode, just w- what comes across most are the Targaryens. I think, you know, the kind of brother dynamic between the King and Damon the really quickly evolving relationship between the king and Renaria, And, you know, I just think those actors, to me, kind of dial in really quickly to some of the complexities of, of their characters. So for me, it was kind of like whenever two of them were on screen together or when the kind of succession conflict really came to a head, that's kind of when I was most excited. To me, you know, it's tough because I feel like with the previous show, right off the bat, there were all these different people who I felt really kind of, we're coming to the forefront with different families, different backgrounds. This one, I, I do think the success is kind of the, is kind of the Targaryens. Although I do think that Risa Fons as as oh, I'm going to butcher his name.
3: Otto Hightower.
0: Otto Hightower. Mm-hmm. I do think that given that that character and that sort of like plotting role on the council, I think for a lot of viewers, it's kind of like, Oh, is he the new little finger? And I think right away he's up to something a little more interesting and a little more rooted in family. So I, I sort of felt like for someone who's very subdued by nature, I, I thought that character was very interesting and in just sort of seeing how the gamesmanship that he's doing plays out, even in times of high tragedy and how he's kind of using the tragic death of the queen, possibly for his own good or the queen's good or for you know whatever he thinks is his purpose. Um, I, I, I was invested in him as well, uh, which I was maybe like not I I was somewhat surprised by that, given that initially I thought he seemed to be just kind of filling the, you know, suspicious, plotting, small council role.
3: (laughs) I thought he was interesting also because I've only seen events and like he was in the Harry Potter movies. He always was playing kind of like goofier roles. And so like here, him playing the serious and sober. And I thought that was kind of like when they initially cast him out, I was like, like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But I thought he did a really good job with, you know, you could see him doing this with the machinations behind. He was trying to serve the king but he was also trying to do some other stuff as well.
0: Before we go
2: further with Otto, let's take a quick break and when we return, we'll get into all of the juicy book spoilers. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking
2: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So I want to use auto to kind of jump into our next portion, which is the spoilery book kind of discussion. I think this is a great example of how Maybe the show is turning into a companion piece to the book, to Fire and Blood in a lot of ways. I mean, Darren, you mentioned Fire and Blood is much more sort of like an unreliable narrator kind of historical telling of events. It doesn't get into too many specifics, just kind of glosses over the major events and the people who claim to know what happened. And whereas House of the Dragon is going to be more of an objective account of the series of events. The book makes everyone come across as more active schemers in sort of the events that transpire. And what I loved about Otto specifically is that, yes, was it awful to go to his daughter and be like, you should go console the king in his bedchambers wearing one of your mother's gowns. That was terrible. Good God, he's a terrible father. (laughs) But at the same time, it's clear to me that none of these characters really believe like they're doing something wrong. Everyone sort of feels like in some ways that they're either in the right or doing what they think is best for the realm. And Otto, it's clear that the lingering mem- memory of Megar the Cruel is sort of on his mind. He does not want Prince Damon to get to the throne, which is why he's doing mm-hmm. a lot of these things, which I thought was really interesting. So Lauren, I'll kind of start with you. In what ways do you feel like the show is either setting the record straight on events that are happening in the books or kind of presenting itself as more of a companion?
3: I think you mentioned this in your cover story the originally george martin told this story in a couple of novellas before he wrote fire and blood and so when you read them like one is in rogues one's in dangerous women and i think it's like the princess and the queen or i can't remember the other title the
0: princess and the queen or the blacks and the greens yes
3: okay yeah so it's like when you read those those histories are slightly different than what you read in fire and blood so i think it is really interesting when you're talking about how the show is the true history of what happened and i've gone ahead, I've I've watched the first six episodes. And so it's very interesting to see how they clarify things that were like supposed in the book, like maybe this happened, or maybe this happened. And it's like, no, this did happen. And so I think that's kind of like an interesting way to say, like, you know, we've got this tale, but we're gonna, you know, and I think it lets the show explore the the text in kind of interesting ways, because it's like you're getting a lot of discussions that you didn't get in the text, so they can really use their imagination to think about how would Damon and Viserys interact with with each other over these things. Like I think they really kind of made, like Damon's kind of a little I think one note in the book where he's just like, you know, you've always got the good Targaryens and the bad Targaryens, and he was clearly in the bad Targaryens, but I feel like he's a, a little bit more complex. You can't always figure out what his entire reasoning are for things so i thought that was kind of that was pretty interesting and then i think you know just seeing like as we talked about seeing viserys with his wife and how this was like he did really love her but he also was obsessed with having a son you know and how renera felt scorned because she wasn't a boy and just constantly felt like she was sort of second best and how that played into her own psyche and like it's just, just like interesting to see all of these Targaryens and all of their various damaged psyches doing battle with each other. So I thought that was like pretty interesting.
0: To your point, Lauren, the fact that the first episode clearly establishes that on one hand, Daemon really wants to be king, but on the other hand, he seems to, I mean, you could look at it different ways, but to me, he seemed to genuinely like Mm Renaria, who was his his opponent, his potential opponent for, for so I I think that, you know, that kind of complexity bounces off of of the show in a way that, you know, the book's complexity was different, where sometimes the writer within the book who was writing the history would sort of offer these different ideas about, you know, these people, Mm -hmm. and was it this way or was it that way? I'd say, similarly, you know, even if you, like, hate the king now because of his decision during his wife's birth. I think the fact that like he clearly feels haunted by it and the fact that he basically, you know, said yes, to kill my wife to save my heir, you know, the way that the actor's playing that, there's just a lot of up-close richness to that, which the book was kind of operating at a different level. I will say, my one concern with this episode, and this kind of continues in the episodes I've seen, is I think the show is very sincerely trying to add to our understanding of the relationship between Renaria and Alicent Mm -hmm. and on the page, and maybe this is because I kind of first read that, that novella that, that Lauren mentioned the princess and the queen on the page, they're kind of immediate rivals and that kind of Mm -hmm. enmity between them really powers so much of the dance with the dragons. And I think the show is trying to do this journey with them from friendship to something much more complex and I do worry that just like that dynamic to me I didn't fully get it in this episode I feel like the development of their friendship and how it goes from there to rivalry I'm not sure the show totally nails that so so in that sense I was kind of like maybe this is the one time where we are starting way too early here where where these characters ultimately end up is so interesting and right now it feels more like there's sort of placeholder. It's a friendship, but I'm not sure we, yeah. we really get much sense of what their dynamic is.
3: I feel like Alicent in this isn't as well defined as like, I mean, I feel like the book, I could understand Alicent and I, I feel like she's sort of nebulous here. Whereas I think I understand Rhaenyra a lot better, but I mean, we do get more time with her, but, and I don't know if it's just the, the quality of the acting or, you know, uh, uh, but Allison felt a little bit softer here than I think she should have, considering how this is really going to be a conflict between these mm-hmm. two women.
0: It, it may just be an issue with with TV storytelling. It's really hard to create a character who makes such as as much of an immediate impact when the other character she's talking to is introduced on a dragon flight going over yeah. King's Landing. <laughs> like you know, again on the page, that stuff just as cool as it is the kind of interpersonal stakes also kind of immediately pop. And in some respects, I wonder if there's just, you know, it's hard to not immediately feel like, wow, like Renaria is just such a larger than life character, um, whatever her kind of psychological underpinnings are. So yeah, I, I, that's one aspect of the book to screen translation that maybe worked a little less for me. That said, that stuff that is being built towards very clearly in, in this first episode.
2: Yeah, I've only seen the first episode, not all six yet. <laughs> But you know, I, I think, no, I totally see your points. For me, it didn't really bother me too, too much. As someone who suffers from an anxiety disorder, I really, <laughs> I aligned with Alison Hightower. Hightower. Just, and also just having to like mm-hmm. be this quieter, anxious friend, best friend to someone who is such a larger than life personality like Rhaenyra and constantly being overshadowed in that way. I really loved the little flourishes that emily Carey, who plays young allison gave to this character like the chewing and pulling of her nail bits and until they bleed and just like constantly being anxious like i gotta all these eyes are looking at me i gotta please my father i gotta be a good friend to rainera and all of this
3: yeah and like caring a lot more about what the septas were saying which i i know that was like sort of a callback between like aria and sansa where like Arya didn't care and sansa was like always the proper lady so i yeah. think you've seen that too continue on
2: can we also talk about is there some flirtation going on between rainier and allison especially when rainier is resting her head on allison's lap in sort of the red cape and she's like i rather like this position it it feels comfortable
3: (laughs) i could see that i was thinking that like i was like oh are they trying to establish that they're like you know I mean, there wasn't. I don't think anything romantic in, in, in between them in the books. So, but it, here it was sort of the girlhood besties kind of feeling that I, I feel like they were sort of drumming up. But I mean, I definitely thought there was something going on between her and Damon <laughs> in those conversations I mean, with each other.
2: Targaryens are a messy bunch, man. Incest is coming. Winter is coming. Winter <laughs> came. Yeah. Now it's incest. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the major elephant in the room. I, you know, Darren, you mentioned kind of the approach to House of the Dragon was a bold one because there's a major element of the Dance of the Dragons that I've been told by HBO is technically considered a spoiler for anyone who hasn't read the novellas or Fire and Blood. And it's the fact that Allison grows up to marry King Viserys, and it's the two of them who conceived the male son, or the male son, <laughs> they conceived the son, Aegon II, that starts this whole major su- question of succession and this whole civil war that kind of sparks because of that. Whereas in the very beginning, it's the show really seems like it's setting up this conflict between daemon and rhaenyra which i thought was an interesting Mm -hmm. play lauren how do you feel
3: i remember when you told me that they were considering that a spoiler and i was like really that's kind of the obvious setup of the book it's like you know this woman marries the king and then has has him gives him a trueborn son and people kind of were just treating rhaenyra as like a, a stopgap heir, like oh She's fine if we don't have a boy, but we've got a boy. So that was funny when you told me that that was considered a spoiler, because I remember even on our trailer episode, I was like, I'm not sure how I talk about this without mentioning this information. Yeah,
0: it's not a spoiler. It's not a spoiler. Like HBO, no, 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 no. Like no. That, is, that is not protected material. Like no way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's like that's that's the core of the show.
3: <laughs> Those crazy spoiler lists that they used to give out with Mad Men, like you couldn't even say what you know what year it started and I was like come on man like come
2: on yeah. like, i mean you, you can't talk about the dance of the dragons without talking about this core element
3: no. it's like why like why do these two ladies get you know you know it, it's just sort of like you it, you have to talk about that that aspect yeah. of it so i was just like huh that's a weird one to, you know, I, I mean, I don't even know how you entice people to the show without like being like, oh, yeah, this is kind of what's going
0: and, and And I think in a way, again, th- this is where I think the specific choice of adaptation maybe lets the show down initially is what makes the Targaryens interesting is, as Nick was saying, is they're super messy. And it's kind of like, you know, much different, I think, from most of the characters we met in Game of Thrones, even like with the Lannisters, there's kind of a sense of like nothing mm-hmm. being off limits to a Targaryen when they really, really want something. And I think Damon is obviously an an example of that. But even, you know, yeah, the kind of stray bits of flirtation with Renaria, I, I think that that's the kind of stuff that is both disturbing and kind of compelling about them. And yeah, I mean, I'll just say, that's spoiling anything about the show going forward. I think fortunately they don't slow roll that Allison stuff for too long. I mean my my concern, yeah. Nick, when I heard that HBO considered that a spoiler, was like, oh my gosh, is this going to be like a whole season of just slowly getting to a certain <laughs> place? And that's that is not that you know that's not what happens at all. But you know, again, th- this goes back to my one frustration. Really, is if you're you're kind of burying this really interesting rivalry further into the show. I would hope that what you do is give us something interesting about them. And I, I just didn't quite feel their friendship or, or, or their dynamic as being worth the maybe extra tension. But, you know, it is tough when it's kind of like there's a big war coming, but it's not coming for, as readers of the book know, years and years and years.
2: <laughs> like, it's not the Red Wedding. It's not coming <laughs> three seasons down the line. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes, it's definitely not the red wedding. I, th- I think that's kind of good. I mean, it's it's not even like you know, it's not even like the White Walkers, where it's like we're going to introduce them and then we'll we'll catch up with them in season. Four.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was like always my least favorite part of Game of Thrones is when they went back to the White Walkers. I'm like, I don't care. I just don't care. It's not my interest <laughs> in this. But yeah, like dragons fighting fire i, like I just
0: that. i just wanted i just wanted great joys and let me tell you a uh, severe lack of Greyjoys, oh, joys I, severe oh. lack of Greyjoys joys on this show let, let me that we're 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 up in arms over in uh, over in the iron islands where we're throwing a king's oh. or whatever we call it we're we're not happy <laughs> we're not happy
3: see i was always whenever i was reading the later books and i get to a great joy chapters i'm like oh god not another great joy chapter <laughs> so i would always just be like, ah. Oh. <laughs>
0: Lauren, you're, you're a scholar, you're, I'm dead you're too. a scholar, you're, you're, you're a grand master, So, you know, obviously mm-hmm. your opinion holds a lot of sway, but uh, you're, you're a, a, a little piece of my heart just, just, just broke, I'm afraid. <laughs> the problem, the problem was not enough joys. Let's, let's get into Victorian. Let's get into Euron.
3: I did like Asha in the book, who was Yara in the show. Like, I liked her. She was the only Greyjoy I liked. Everybody else, I was like, oh, go away. This
0: is the end of the, this. Is the end of the Greyjoy chat on West of Westeros. Once, once I'm gone, once I'm gone, <laughs> I'm, I'm taking it with me.
2: <laughs> so now let's talk about the big reveal that kind of comes at the end of this episode, where King Viserys picks Rhaenyra to be his sole heir to the Iron Throne and reveals a big secret to her. That I mean, from. My perspective is not in the books at all. Maybe it's coming in the winds of winter. Who knows? Lauren, you you wrote a story about this for EW.com. Do you kind of want to set the stage for what Viserys reveals to Rhaenyra
3: so this is like you know this is after uh Viserys his his uh, baby son is dead his wife is dead he's just disinherited his brother Daemon for being a real jackass but he's got you know he needs to decide his heir and so he invites Rhaenyra down to uh the underneath the skull of Valerian the Black Dread and he was the last rider of Valerian, which is actually I think probably a kind of a feather in his cap, because that was the dragon of Aegon, the, Conquer- the conqueror. So, and he basically tells her a story that sounded pretty familiar when I heard it, because it was like, he was talking about how there was going to be a long winter and that uh, the only way that Westeros could avoid the same sort of doom of Valeria, that if a, a Targaryen was standing on the throne when the long night came to to sort of save the, the world of men. And he called it the Song of Ice and Fire, which readers of the book will know that that's the name of George Martin's series of novels. It's also like this was mentioned specifically in the Houses of the Undying in book two, where Daenerys had a vision of her brother Rhaegar and his wife, Ilia Martell with their son, and saying he's the prince that was promised, his will be the Song of Ice and Fire. So it's kind of like tying into the big prince that was promised prophecy and the Song of Ice and Fire, which, you know, kind of was threaded throughout Game of Thrones, though they didn't specifically talk about it when they did the Houses of the Undying in the series. But like Melisandre mentioned and all this kind of stuff, so it's like, this it's like this whole thing. And it's sort of like, what's really, I thought it was interesting. Cause this is what's really driving Viserys, Cause he believes that he needs an heir because if there's not a Targaryen on the throne, the world is going to, you know, it's going to be the doom all over again. So this is like, what's sort of driving his decision to name Renaria his heir. So I thought that was like, you know, it was kind of interesting to tie, like see how this was all sort of tied in because that prophecy plays into a lot of what happens with the, uh, the Targaryens going forward.
0: Yeah, L- Lauren, I was trying to remember, and I, th- th- there may be an example and I'm just too dumb to remember. Did, they, did anyone on Game of Thrones, the show, ever actually say the phrase Song of Ice and Fire?
3: I was trying to remember. I feel like, I can't remember if it was like Melisandre. Like, I know it was like, it was mentioned specifically right. in the book in the Houses of the Undying, but they didn't really do... The visions that Daenerys saw—it was kind of much more sort of atmospheric. Yeah, yeah, But it's like I, you know, it's like I know, like, and then they argued that the prince that was promised was John. It was Daenerys. Right,
0: right, yeah. I, I definitely remember, remember all that stuff. I just like the idea that like George R. R. Martin, who is a credited co-creator of this show and is working on a few other shows with mm-hmm. HBO, I like the idea that he was like, listen, they are saying a Song of Ice and Fire on this show. Okay, <laughs> they are going to say, like,
3: say this. They are going to say this. Phrase.
2: It is a great phrase. Martin's a branding queen. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I can't remember if, like, some of, like, the later stuff with Bran and being the three-eyed raven and seeing all that kind of stuff, it's, like, I feel like it came out somewhere, but I... Can't remember right now where it, I just know it didn't come out in the like where it was supposed to in the Houses of the Undying. Just just
0: so. t- two responses to what, to uh, the mm-hmm. great stuff you were saying earlier, Lauren. First of all, I like the idea that uh, that that the king he's like the, he's like the high school quarterback who never really did anything better. Where he's like, <laughs> well, I I wrote on that dragon like that's that's
3: pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, I was like, that was me. That was me. I got, got like, Valeria. Like, I haven't done a you know? lot of good
0: stuff you know? since then, but I but that you know I yeah I, I got to write on Valeria and that's pretty impressive. Huh?
3: Yeah, um, he died a year later, but I still
0: wrote him. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know? maybe i no. maybe i wrote him like the wrong way i don't know he <laughs> he he'd been fine before the, the second thing i'll just say is for me i struggled with this a little bit on one hand it feels very prequely. it feels very we're talking about to go back to star wars we're talking about the one who will change the force force messiah stuff like yeah, that that stuff works best well for me i will say as lauren was kind of saying it does add a little bit of embroidery To feel like, you know, it's not just that this king and other Targaryens it's not just that they're doing this to be in charge or because they think that they're the best ones to be in charge of this country. The idea that they are kind of driven by this belief in this prophecy, that's interesting except for the fact that us viewers know the prophecy is correct. You know, like it's like we, we mm-hmm. know that that's actually the right thing, you know, compared to something like in um, Battlestar Galactica, a show that I love, you had President Rosalind was also driven by this religious kind of fervent belief that she had to be doing mm-hmm. certain things. And all along in the show, so you were kind of like is that true or is this you know something we should be a little more concerned about so i i could have not used that i felt like the moment between you know, between king and princess kind of announcing as the heir. There's kind of nothing happening emotionally for me there. But I don't know, where, where'd you stand on that, Nick? Like, were you into that kind of stitching together of the kind of continuity towards, the, towards what happens in Game of Thrones?
2: The stitching together of the continuity, I liked. But this scene gave me nothing kind of emotionally speaking. I mean, it should be kind of a big moment. I mean, this is the moment where Viserys mm-hmm. realizes how shitty he's been treating his daughter. And now he has to name her, you know, future queen of Westeros. And also there's a lot of feelings within Rhaenyra. I mean, she's been talking this whole episode about how she's never going to be a son and her father needs to accept it. To the point where, like, she needs to be the one to, like, command her dragon to, like, burn her dead mother and, like, dead brother. So from that perspective, it didn't really work for me. To your point that we as viewers already know that this prophecy is correct, I did like how this episode... So this, is, this vision is called a dragon dream, all, like, the true blood of the dragon. Have these visions. Some are, like, legit prophecies. Others are just, like, garbled vision messes and it's like there's <laughs> nothing to them it, it bears no more scrutiny and i kind of loved how in the beginning of this episode viserys was like oh i i had this vision of my son like, yeah. coming out of your womb with the crown and all the dragons were as on one it's like no queen like that's you 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 <laughs> are not true blood of the dragon material you are not getting a prophecy here <laughs> so i kind of do like how it like plays with that like not all dragon dreams are like legit and should be followed to a t a real
3: yeah but it's also like when you think about the prince was what was promised and they were arguing it was John, they were arguing it was daenerys but Arya was the one who killed the night king so like who the hell you know it was like yeah John and daenerys were there but she's the one who did it
0: I I like I like now you know just on a show that's that's full of Targaryens. Let's have one Targaryen who each morning they wake up and they're like, "Guys, I had a dragon dream. I had, an- like, <laughs> I had a prophecy," and everyone's just like, "You had like ten prophecies like last month." I, I they're, yeah, they're not like, all correct. Not- <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> but like you know, this damn prince that was promised one is is gonna really bedevil them because kind of causes some chaos later on in the uh. In the years.
2: So, to kind of close things out, are there any like fun Easter eggs that you guys spotted over the course of this first episode that you really liked? Mine, uh, well, well the top of my list is when Allison and Rhaenyra are having their history lesson at the Red Keep, and Rhaenyra mentions Nymeria and how she took her 10,000 ships to flee their Valyrian pursuers. And lo and behold, there's a Nymeria prequel series called What? Ten thousand ships currently in development at HBO. <laughs> uh, so that was top of my list, Lauren. What about you?
3: I honestly just kind of like seeing sort of the forebears of the other houses, the like the Baratheons, and later on we're going to see some Lannisters and things of that sort. But I kind of like just seeing like sort of the forebears and like, and then certain houses where you're like, I don't. Remember that house i guess something bad happened to you like that kind of thing like you know there was the certain houses that showed up and you're like oh yeah you guys survive 172 years and then other ones not so much what about you darren did you were there any easter eggs that you liked
0: not an easter egg but uh (laughs) an aspect of the show that seems to be somewhat tying into the larger world that i have several questions about maybe better to hold a forum on that in a couple episodes but um so we see Damon with a paramour mm-hmm. whose name I believe is Miss Misaria, Misaria,
3: Misaria, yeah,
0: played by uh, Mizuno who uh, of course was in Devs and and um, a couple of things with the director Alex Garland, and this character has an accent that uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say kind of ties back. Very interesting. It ties back to I mean, listen. It's a fantasy universe. Game of Thrones, the show, had to do something the book didn't have to do, which was sort of create accents for different points of the map. And, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes based around just what actor was cast, sometimes just trying to indicate that we're at a different corner of the world. And this accent is interesting. I look forward to the discourse on it. I think the character is probably the character I'm least invested in on the show, Mm. but it does kind of capture some of the difficulties. On the original show, I always felt like they nailed Westeros and then everything in Essos and stuff like that would be a little bit trickier and a little bit more in what to me was kind of the more familiar, exotic, less textured version of fantasy. And this kind of brings that up in a way where it's just, it feels like, one interesting thing going forward with this whole universe of HBO makes more and more of these shows is there is kind of more explanation of those points elsewhere on the map. And, you know, listen, it's hard to make one cool fantasy continent. And I think Westeros is very much that. So that was kind of a reminder of like, oh, right, there's this other stuff in this world where when they go there, bring in those characters. It's, it's not always quite as compelling. So less less an Easter egg than a reminder of one of the harder aspects of world building, maybe.
3: (laughs) Yeah, when they start when uh, when Corliss starts talking about the things going on in like the stepstones and these kind of things I'm like "Mm
0: -hmm." I sort of know where the stepstones are. Like I'll I'll have to get the map out and uh, look it up again though. There's, There's there's You know,
3: for the when when I was first watching Game of Thrones and like reading the books, for some reason I had the whole entire map flipped so that King's Landing was on the wrong side. And so I was like, oh no, it's it's the other way
0: they talk about the North and you look at it, It's like, that, that like, wait, Dorne is in the North. What? Like, <laughs> no. Whoa.
3: At least that was just like, for some reason, for the longest time I had Kings landing on the wrong side <laughs> of, the, of the map. And I was like, no, it's on the other side, dummy. So, you know, they're traveling that way. You know, normally I don't have a problem with directions, but in Westeros I did. So, <laughs> but that was just funny, but like, you know, names and, you know, so you're like, Oh, that's how that name is said. You know, all that fun stuff you find with fantasy.
0: Yeah. Again, as as I, I, As Nick was implying, in hindsight, pronouncing it Rainis was probably not something that was going to happen on on television. (laughs) Rainis,
3: Rainis. That was not, yeah, let's let's
0: get that clear, if nothing else.
2: She's (laughs) not from Ronkonkoma, Long Island over here. (laughs) 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 Knowing where we are in House of the Dragon and knowing what we know from Fire and Blood, what are we most excited to see moving forward?
3: More dragons. This is a time when there are tons of dragons. There are tons of dragon riders. All this other uh, other kind of stuff. I will say, I you know, I I am curious to see the older actresses take on their roles and how that melds together. Because it is interesting when you have younger people that portraying a character, and then all of a sudden an older actor takes up. So I'm kind of interesting to see how those two things meld together.
0: Darren, what about you? More ships, of course. Got to get more ships. (laughs) We've got naval warfare going out there. But no, I I think just for me, and this was true of the original show to a certain extent, I think it's it's really hard to capture on screen just like the density of detail that Martin creates Mm -hmm. in books. And on one hand, I admire the attempt. On the other hand, I do remember that the original show Really was a snowball rolling down the mountain, and by the time you got to the end of the first season and into season two and three, you know that was kind of I think for a lot of people where the show really took off. So I I wonder if something similar happens here. I'm I'm excited about just getting to the point where Rhaenyra and Alicent, readers of the book know, are just much more clearly on opposite sides of the central succession debate, and just you know what that does to the characters around them and how it kind of really creates that sense of these disparate forces all kind of working towards their own ends. That's, that's what I'm excited about. We're in the early stages, but mm-hmm. let's get to where the risk board is just covered with, you know, different things happening. And, you know, that, that to me is where the previous show. And I think maybe this show kind of comes to life with a, a little more, just kind of consistency. Mm.
2: I really want to see Kragis Drehar, the crab feeder. He's, he's, he's a yeah. major figure in the battle of the Stepstones. He's name dropped by Coralis and during the small council meeting. His name is pretty self-explanatory. He buries his victims in the sand and lets the crabs have Adam. <laughs> we saw him a little bit in the trailers. He has this mask on. It's kind of Phantom of the Opera meets. <laughs> I'm just going to bury you in the sand and, you know. <laughs> But I'm excited for that guy.
0: Much like the Phantom of the Opera, of course, he has his like theme song that he keeps returning to. Uh, you know, Really, really surprised by the musical numbers on this show. I was not expecting that.
3: Dropping chandeliers <laughs> all over the stand. The first
0: Game of Thrones musical episode.
3: <laughs> oh. God, please. Nick is a
0: simple man with simple pleasures. He wants the crab feeder and he wants him now. That's what, that's what he came here for. (laughs) uh...
3: And I just, I just want the dragons. Just give me the dragons, you know? I was so nerdy. I was like making a dragon list this morning of like the dragon and the rider, just so I could keep it like straight. Like, okay, this person, like this dragon, had this these riders, and like, you know, I was just keeping it straight in my head. I,
0: Lauren, I I I really admire that. Like for me, it was just very similar. Like, okay, Damon has the red one. The red dragon is red and seems a little more a, a little angrier. He is the angry dragon, mm-hmm. and then there's the others. That's that's all I could really keep track of in this first episode.
3: Well, that's like, the problem with like all of the Targaryen dragon names is that it's like there's so. Wing and Quicksilver, and there's the Bloodworm and the White Worm, and you're like, ah, oh, I need different names here, you know? And everyone's named Aegon or Aemond or, you know, they've all got the, you know, it's all those, those complicated. Naming
0: things. a dragon, anything with fire, like that's, that's like putting yeah. die in a James Bond title. It's just like, come on guys. <laughs> like, let's, let's try a little harder here. Okay. Like, like fire and wing for a dragon. Like, wow. Like you, you yeah. were really stretching on that one, Targaryen.
3: And then you've got the, the Syrax, the Carax the Arax the Tyrax. <laughs> and then you're like, ah. Oh.
0: Lauren, you know, all the kids in preschool now are named Syrax and Tyrax. You know, those are just, those are just common names
3: actually there's someone there's someone though in my daughter's class who's named aria and it's spelled like the right name and i was just like oh, i know who your fans, your parents were fans of <laughs> so you know so it is funny it does bleed through I haven't met a Khaleesi yet or a Daenerys but I have met an Aria.
2: Lauren I'm so excited to dissect all future episodes of House of the Dragon with you every week Darren thank you so much for helping us kick off this new era of the EW pod
0: so excited you guys are gonna have such a great time and I'll be very excited to um, listen to you and very excited to hear you finally nail down the pronunciations of all the names that's that's what I'm tuning in for
2: <laughs> after this quick break we'll get into my interview with Millie Alcock who plays young Princess Rhaenyra Targaryen. I'm so glad we finally have a, a chance to talk with each other. Yeah, yeah. So what has your life been like since the first House of the Dragon trailers <laughs>
1: kind of came out? It's the same. Like the same. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like every, now, just now. It's just more like family friends give me really like those kind of eyes. Like you're doing, you know. Like like people's parents are like more nicer to me. You know. Like people like oh, you're doing, you're doing great. Like if you do well. Like but no, nothing really else has happened. And I don't really, I don't really expect it to. But um, yeah. Just how people and t- my friends, my close friends have been the same. But like extended old friends have been kind of like oh that's cool yeah yeah
2: no I love that I mean when you hear the words game of thrones like especially in America it's like I mean I don't know Mm. how it is in London but I mean it's there's such a deep rooted fan base (laughs) kind of always Mm. attached to that has that played on your mind at all have you kind of been thinking about that at all
1: (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like the biggest, it's the biggest crushing show in the world. So there's a bit of pressure, but I think it is a completely new show. Like it's not Game of Thrones. Like they've, you know, Miguel and Ryan have been really aware of establishing a new tone and a new style and a new color and a new and a and a new energy with with the show, as opposed to Game of Thrones. So they can be differentiated, which I am really excited about because it's a bit, it's a bit darker, which is. That's cool, but yes, scared of the fandom. Just,
2: yeah. <laughs> it's
1: just well, weird. I don't
2: know. Yeah. When when you say it's weird, I mean in what way is it weird? Is it sort of just like the high profile ness of it all? I,
1: yeah, I think I mean I've I've never done something even close. Like I've been doing like Australian TV. It's, it's a different, it's a different league. But I think it's the first show that I've ever done where there's a pre-established fan base. So people already come in and know what's going to happen and know what everything means, sometimes better than you, which is kind of, it's it's interesting because your job as an actor is like, okay, so am I trying to serve what's expected of me or am I trying to make individual and independent decisions on the day? So it's kind of, it's, that's, that's where it's weird. It's like, how do I kind of like counteract this balance of me having control or control, but having an input in the role, but also serving homage to... End up. Mm.
2: well let's go back to the beginning i mean when did you first even hear about this opportunity to be in house of the dragon
1: like the second audition i only did two auditions which really shocked me because i was like "Okay, you guys really sure like are you really sure like this is this felt really quick but yeah it was the second tape that i sent through is when i found out what it was and i was just like oh this, this will be fun i'm not gonna get it i'll just you know do my best, have fun. So it yeah. was. It was. It was just,
2: it, it was just two self tapes. <laughs> yeah. Not even an in person audition.
1: Yeah. Well, it was COVID, and I live in Sydney, so it's like, i am like gonna fly this girl? I don't think people realize how far the straight. Like, I'm flying to London, and I spent twenty three hours in the air, like in the air, not even like transiting. So. Yeah, they were just they were just um, soft tapes. I think everybody had a very different audition experience.
2: I was talking with Steve Toussaint, and he was saying that... Aww. Oh, he's such a sweetheart. Oh, he's so nice. Yeah,
1: yeah he's crazy.
2: But he was telling me that... When he auditioned, he used material from like Tywin Lannister from the first Game of Thrones. Yeah. I mean, did you use Game of Thrones material for House of the Dragon or was it something completely different? Yes,
1: um, but they sent I don't know why I called Steve to so crazy. I've worked with Steve before, which is what's really crazy. But the, the audition material was actually, it was one of Macy Williams' scenes very, very early on where she, she's given Needle. And I'd never seen Game of Thrones before. So I was just doing—I was just doing this self tape in a friend's bedroom, and he was like, he was like, "This, I think this is from Game of Thrones," and I was like, "Oh, okay." And then we just looked up the scene, and it was—it was from Game of Thrones.
2: Do you think there is sort of a kindred spirit between Maisie's Arya Stark and Princess Rhaenyra? Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. They're both women who don't behave the way that they're expected to. And they're kind of being compared to another woman or the way that they should behave and should be perceived. So there is that kind of rebellious and like kind of cheeky spirit that they both possess, which I think is why people are going to adore them. How did you
2: want to approach the role? Because I I gather there's sort of a lot you can kind of potentially pull from, you know, you have the fire and blood book, you have the scripts that Miguel and Ryan worked on. And then you also have Miguel and Ryan in person kind of giving you notes and direction. How did you kind of want to approach this character?
1: I mean, I did a lot of independent research and everything before I came over just so I understood the world because I hadn't seen Game of Thrones. So I was like, I'll watch it and then I'll break everything down just so I understand what everything is actually at stake. Here. And it was really interesting because because of the genre and because of the time period and because of what's expected to her. Actually, she didn't need to do a lot. She's very stoic, but she's just got that underlying cheekiness that I think is 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 kind of what she uses to get to get what she wants. But also gets used against her as a woman. So yeah, it kind of it kind of it just changed day to day the way that I approached it because every day was different on set, mm. and I needed a different part of her every day
2: it's uh, talking to some of your co-stars. It, some of them said that it was more beneficial for them to not read Fire and Blood and just kind of go Yeah, on their I own. didn't read it. So you just kind of relied on your own like interpretation.
1: Yeah, on the scripts. Yeah. Mm.
2: What stood out to you most about the scripts that you just loved?
1: The writing is really good. For it to be for for like a fantasy genre sometimes the writing is kind of used to drive the plot and to kind of explain what's going on but they were the writers hats off to them. Like it was, they were really clever and they were very good at teetering that line between having the dialogue to serve the plot, but also having it be realistic like how people would actually speak and interact in that time.
2: What I find so fun about just the idea of this show is like fire and blood. It's, It's not written like a novel. It's written from like multiple sources and you don't know what's true or not. They could be lying to you. Do you feel like the show almost is sort of like setting the record straight on like who Princess Rhaenyra is in sort of the context of Targaryen history?
1: I think it does a bit of both. I think it serves both perspectives and it gives the audience the kind of, it invites them to decide who they choose to believe and who they choose to have done the right thing. But it does expose the truth, whatever that, you know, whatever side of the truth you're on. I yeah. mean, I There's think, three sides. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love that. We love, a, we love a, mm. you know, a well-rounded character, like a meaty role. Yeah. yeah. And you felt yeah. that, yeah, you felt like you had a lot to dig into with this, it sounds yeah. like.
1: Yeah. She constantly surprised me. Mm. Which, I'm, she was probably my favourite person to play. Because I just got to transform completely. Like, I would take off the wig and get home and be like, oh, damn. <laughs> I was quite cute, but now I'm not so cute. <laughs> and the way that you walk in the, in the dresses is really, like, I'd find myself waiting for the bus standing like her and be like, really, what the, like, bro, what the, just stop. Just, <laughs> you don't have to be, because you have to hold yourself up for the costumes.
2: I have to ask you about the wigs. I don't know why, Mm -hmm. but so many fans are obsessed with the wigs Mm -hmm. already. They just dissect the trailers and they want the best Yeah. What was your experience working with them?
1: I mean, I had beautiful, beautiful hair and makeup department. I had two gorgeous girls. Heather and Lisa who would look after me every day and do my hair. I mean, the wigs, like the actual wigs, the process of getting them fit was they would kind of like, measure your hair because I had really long hair and then I cut it off because it was it took too long to get done up in the morning every day but they would braid it put it in a bold, like in a stocking and then they would slick back your hair they'd paint your hair and then they'd put a bold cap on and then they'd paint the bold cap and then they would kind of like slot the wig on and glue it but it was like I had one wig the entire show and it was kept immaculately like those those girls are those guys and girls are so talented and they're the best at their job. And that's what was a real kind of indulgence in this job, was working with people who were the best at their game in every department. So I've never experienced that before. And pretty much everyone had a wig. Everyone had a wig or a weft, or a beard or a headpiece. And it was it was incredible. It was incredible watching how, you know, you wouldn't see it, but they'd be like, oh, I can see this one. I can see where the lace is coming up. I can see what this one little little thing is. Very, very impressive. <laughs>
2: It was funny. I was talking with Eve Best and she hated the wig. So it's nice to hear that somebody actually liked it. I loved it.
1: (laughs) I'm young. Yeah, like I'm really young. Like, you know, it's my first thing. I'm kind of just like, I'm sure the novelty will wear off. I love that.
2: So I know this show kind of deals with two separate timelines. So like, you're not really technically, you know, sharing scenes with Emma Darcy, but I was curious if you two worked closely together just to kind of make sure that your performances kind of complemented each other at all.
1: No. And that was really weird because me and Emma approached Miguel being like, we would love to have a meeting together, you know, with you and Ryan and let's sit down and talk to her. blah, 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 blah. And it kind of, it just, we just kept asking it just kind of didn't happen. So I was like, Okay. This would have happened if they wanted it to happen, because <laughs> like, it's quite a, it's quite important. I believe that it was quite important that these characters were consistent. So I just think that Miguel and Ryan had full faith that we knew who she was, and that it could create more confusion if we were kind of aware of the way that we behaved and interacted. So, um, no, we didn't, which was kind of kind of weird. So I haven't even I haven't seen any of Emma's stuff. I'm very excited to see see their performance. Maybe yeah. with
2: maybe without even thinking about it, you you ended up just kind of capturing Emma's performance.
1: I think so. I think that was, I think that was the thing. Yeah. yeah. No, I found that really strange.
2: <laughs> well, what about um, working with Emily? Because we know sort of at the beginning, you know, before Alicent and Rhaenyra are at each other's throats, mm-hmm. warring, they're actually friends. I mean, what was sort of like working with Emily and just kind of working out that kind of character dynamic?
1: And I think me and Em got really lucky that we got to kind of have all the fun and also have a bit of tension between our two characters as well because there was a lot to explore within that but I me and Emily contacted each other before we started shooting and kind of built a bit of a relationship and then you know we met in person and it was kind of like she she, I lent on her a lot and I feel that she lent on me a lot because she was the only other person that kind of understood being a really young girl in a life-changing experience, or something that's really overwhelming, so we kind of we kind of like stuck together, you know. And I think of her as like a little sister, I'm very protective of her, and very like Emily. Ugh. It was it was a joy. It was a joy to work with someone who's also as experienced as Emily at such a young age, and so talented, just effortlessly, just in it. So playing, playing around with, with being, you know, friends was easy. <laughs> it was easy. It was hard to be, hard to be angry at her. It was hard to fight at her.
2: One thing I'm really fascinated by in this story is the relationship between the dragons and then the dragon riders. I mean, did you have to do a lot of sort of CG work, like kind of pretending like you're interacting with a dragon? Or dragon? Like that? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. We went, I don't know we went. We were in this, I going to say, big bitch. We're in this big bitch. <laughs> and <laughs> there's a scene where I'm patting my dragon, but it was just like a big blue cutout. And it was also just the neck because the dragon was so big. But they just kind of had the neck, and then there was a big blue screen behind it, so it kind of just looked like we were at a really shitty music festival. Because <laughs> it was like a little lifted area that I would jump off, like a little stage, and I would have to pat it. And then Miguel was like, "Can you smell it?" And I was like, "Yeah," but it just kind of smelled. <laughs> just smelling the styrofoam but I got the incentive of like you know you smell your dog or your cat it's it's a very human thing to kind of form a connection so that was kind of funny and it was just a grip like this (laughs) 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 kind of moving (laughs) which was fun but the actual buck stuff was a lot more fun oh my god I saw
2: that I saw that yeah that looks so cool yeah
1: that was really that was really fun but I didn't know I never knew what to do with my face it sounds really odd I mean, it's kind of bad
2: is it disorienting at all being up on there or did you just kind of go with it
1: <laughs> it's fun like you just kind of go with it it's fun but I haven't really done a lot of action based like movement based performances so it was kind of like I just didn't it was like and now you're riding to home and you're excited <laughs> and because there's no actual wind because you're still there's just a bunch of men and like women <laughs> Big, like leaf blowers basically <laughs> <laughs> and like smoke <laughs> just in your face and they're trying to get your hair to like go a certain way not this way not that way and like yeah it was fun it was a really fun day just kind of sat there <laughs> just like pooped about yeah
2: it looked so much fun I was, I, tried yeah. to get, I tried to get HBO to let me go up on it and they were like no absolutely no not. they
1: didn't even let like so many people <laughs> out. I was like they didn't even, yeah they were very like no no one can go up on this. Yeah.
2: I forget Rhaenyra's dragon's name, but I, I was curious if, you know, because they're, they're, the writers have very specific dragons that are paired with them. So I was curious if there was something about Rhaenyra's dragon that made you think differently about this character and how to approach her. Yeah. If they shared like a characteristic or something like that. Yeah. well, see.
1: It's Syrax. I think it's Syrax or Syrax. I always, yeah. I always would pick it up. Uh, the spelling of it, but I think the impetus of her having a dragon, and she started riding really young, and we see her. She has an understanding of of history and famous dragon, like especially female dragon riders. She she's kind of aware of that and looks up to them, in a sense. So I think that that says more about her than the actual dynamic between between her dragon. It's because she's you know she's boyish and she learned to ride very young, which most women weren't. And kind of, you know, is is naughty and goes off when she's not meant to. She's just cheeky.
2: When I talked to um, Miguel when I was on set, he said something and I couldn't tell if he was joking. Like when I kind of thought back to it Understand? Yeah. (laughs) What did he say? He told me that he taught a class, basically, with all of you about how dragons work in this world and the mythology of it. Did that actually happen or was he just kind of joking around?
1: I think he was joking. I wasn't. In attendance if this was a class oh. it could have been it could have been with the with the big kids
2: and the little kids did you have to learn <laughs> a lot about sort of like the history of dragons in this world or, or were you just kind of like oh
1: <laughs> I mean I didn't I didn't have to, I didn't feel as though I had to because my my job as an actor is to is is to understand the world and to understand the circumstances of the world and this is all that's all assumed knowledge like I don't have to prove in my performance that Rhaenyra has a profound understanding about the history of Westeros or all the other parts da, 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 because it doesn't translate on screen unless that scene invites it or, or, or requires it. Because otherwise you just got too much stuff going on and you can't focus on like, okay, at the end of the day, this is a father and a daughter having an argument. It doesn't matter what their status is. It doesn't matter, you know, what's going on. Oh, this is a best friend who's trying to, you know, get a secret out of someone. Like at the end of the day, that is the scene.
2: I wanted to ask, too, about a couple other sort of character relationships in this first season. We get a shot in the trailer. It's a great line, and it's of Princess Rhaenys. And she says, men would sooner put the realm to the torch than see a woman ascend the Iron Throne.
1: Ascend the Iron Throne.
2: Yeah. yeah. And I, I was curious what sort of that relationship is between both of your characters. Like, is Rhaenys sort of this living kind of reminder of sort of the the patriarchy that Rhaenyra is kind yes. of going into
1: yes she is the as we know the queen who never was and that's kind of aware and kind of held over Rhaenyra's head that she could be the queen that never was I don't want to say that Rhaenys is resentful in any way but there's a there's definitely a weird dynamic as women that is kind of it could be it could it's you know it's a tiny bit of internal misogyny within it because of the time period because there, there could only be one woman that could be the best. You know, there couldn't be there couldn't be a bunch of them. It was like there was only one. So it and also she's turning. It's an interesting dynamic. There's a lot going on.
2: I wanted to ask too about Patty as sort of King Viserys. Mm, someone told yeah. me again, there was so much information going around. I'm like trying to confirm it all. I was told Patty went method, but like he kind of chose the method acting route for this character. Is that true or not really?
1: I mean, I'm not one to speak on someone's process. But I didn't, personally I didn't see him go method. I saw him indulge and stay in character on set, but I, I wouldn't, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't disclosed. If, if he did, I didn't know about it, basically.
2: Was it important for both of you to kind of develop a rapport on set, just kind of given the very close connection between Viserys and Rhaenyra?
1: Yeah. It was important. And I mean, Paddy's he's a fucking pro. He's a, he's a legend. That man is is an incredible performer, so I was really intimidated <laughs> by him as this little Australian child. <laughs> just being like, "Hi," like you know. But I think that that Patty and I's relationship that we developed was was professional, and that really helped set the tone for Rhaenyra and Viserys' relationship because it wasn't it's father daughter, but it's a father who doesn't know how to talk to his daughter, and it's a daughter who's not doesn't know how to talk to her father. So it kind of it kind of helped it the fact that we were both a bit unsure of how to kind of establish it but I think that I think that we did some good stuff I didn't get read I mean I hope you knows?
2: <laughs> <laughs> were there any sort of big lessons for you uh, just as an actor working with people oh, like yeah. Patty and Eve and Emma
1: I learned so much I feel like the experience of, of of that show and especially Rhaenyra's journey that you guys will discover I felt that my journey as as Millie kind of aligned with hers being thrusted into a position that could be could have been possible but you never really thought would happen. And then all of the conflicts that comes internally and externally with that and then kind of overcoming it and realizing how to how to play the game and how to how to cope with it.
2: You mentioned at the beginning of our chat that, you know, it was important for Miguel and yeah. Ryan to have a different kind of tone than Game of Thrones, the first show. Um, And I was curious yeah. for you, like, how did it yeah. feel different? What was that tone? What was that vibe?
1: Well, I guess I wasn't on set for the original Game of Thrones, so I wouldn't know how to compare. I think I think that's something that's created in the edit and within not my department mm. specifically. But the people who create the world around it, the writers, the D.O.P.s, the, you know, the, the gaffers, that, they they are the people who make that, make that world. But in the writing, you could see that it was it was a bit of darkness.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm like, Ooh.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: I'm excited to see more yeah. of what you guys have been working on. But for now, I'll yeah, just me say too. thank you so much for taking the time today. This was thank such a great... you. Thank you. Thanks again to Millie and Darren for joining us on this episode of West of Westeros. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Nick A. Romano and at Morglar.
3: This episode of West of Westeros is hosted by Nick Romano and Lauren Morgan. Produced by Chanel Johnson, Sammy Junio, Nick Romano, and Lauren Morgan. Edited by Michael Classic. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com.
2: New episodes of West of Westeros come every Sunday, right after the episodes of House of the Dragon air on HBO and stream on HBO Max. Stay tuned.